Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's go to Joshua chapter 6. We have arrived, thank you, at the story that probably, if you know anything about Joshua, you know this one, you know the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Um, And at that, the title is actually quite misleading. Um, I have to say, we could call it the fall of Jericho, or the giving of Jericho, or even the offering of Jericho, but as we read chapter 6, we realize that calling this a battle almost seems inappropriate. Israel's strategy seems novel, um, and more importantly, probably foolhardy when considering the strength and position of Jericho. I mean, what is uh, circling around this thing going to do? Are they just going to rumble it down by their footprints, or how is this going to work? Why not a siege? Why not maybe a siege ramp? Or how about an all-out invitation to battle on the plains of Jericho? Why wasn't this conducted like a regular battle? Perhaps it wasn't a battle at all. By the way, was it really Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho? Was it Joshua's plan? Was it by Joshua's great strategy and his might and his uh, military prowess? Was it not? We didn't just meet this man called the commander of the Lord's army at the end of chapter 5. Now I have come, he said to us. And we can see that he hasn't left yet? Was it really Joshua who fought the battle? Or was it a battle? Man, that that, that song might just have all of it wrong. I'm not sure, I'm not here to burst bubbles or be novel in my approach to the scriptures, but I think it's important that this famous, well-known passage doesn't get lost on us. We all think, oh, I know what happens. They go around there six times, and the, you know, the first six days, once at the end of the seventh day, they go seven times, it falls down, and that's the end of it. God's power, awesome story. Hold on, there's a lot more here for us. Otherwise, it would have been happening in like four or five verses, and it would have been over. So I think it's important for us to sort of make sure we understand what Joshua's point here is, not what we think the battle of Joshua is all about, Jericho. So that's what we're going to do this morning. There's certainly a great victory here over the city of Jericho, and every one of God's enemies were destroyed. Everything that God said would happen, happened. But if you and I had taken the story and we had to write it, or perhaps we had to make a movie of it, it would have looked very different from the way that Joshua presents it to us. I mean, we would have spent significant time talking about the crumbling and the actual falling of this wall. It's incredible. Or we talk about the moment when the slaughter took place in this vast devastation in the name of Yahweh. We probably would have explained and watched and talked about the stones and as the mortar cracked and as one by one they began to fall, so much so that its entire wall cascading down like a rocky Niagara Falls. We would have made much of that. Or we would have taken the time to describe at least one of the episodes of 
the Israelite warriors going in over the rubble, ready to scale this place and successfully push back all the defenses and make sure that the edge of the sword was slain to everyone and almost describe it as an epic battle from like a Lord of the Rings movie, something like that something to show how incredibly powerful. And we would have had scenes where the music is playing in the background and it's strong and it's like, you know, motivational and it's showing the strength and determination and courage of these men. And by the end, you're like, wow, they did it. There was victory and greatness. But as we're about to read, that is not how Joshua portrays this at all. Um, This is not what Joshua wants to tell us. So it's important that we actually take Joshua for Joshua not what we want it to be. Instead, Joshua's going to give us a great amount of detail concerning the command of the Lord and then how Israel obeyed it. We'll get one small verse that says the wall fell down flat and then another that briefly describes the total destruction of the city. The rest of the chapter is spent by Joshua making good on the promises from the spies to Rahab and then the curse that he pronounces on anyone who would try to rebuild the city. We're going to walk through this story together. It's not overly complicated, but it's the first of many stories of the conquest. This is the very first one. It was given to us in much detail, and it's very emblematic of all the rest of the conquest that we're going to see. In one sense, it not only gives us an introduction, but gives us detail of what this conquest is actually all about. It will help us to realize who God is. It will give us a ton of detail and proclaim Yahweh's goodness and greatness. We begin in verse 1. Take a look with a comment from the narrator that kind of sounds just like what we heard in 3.15. The comment in 6.1 is pretty simple. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. If you remember back to chapter 3, as they're getting ready to go into the river, that Yahweh has told them that he will open up for them, that he will let them cross somehow. Remember right in 315, the tension is growing, and all of a sudden Joshua says, now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of harvest. Remember what he's trying to do, that create that like dramatic suspense for us, but he's also putting in front of us an insurmountable object, this obstacle that would stop everything, as though not only was it just the Jordan River, it was at flood stage, and it was huge. And so before us seems to be this insurmountable obstacle. Um, The similar comment then is here about Jericho walls. They're completely shut up. No one's going in, no one's going out. The doors are completely shut, the walls are tight, everything is secured here. This is not a stockade fence that can be taken care of by some sort of battering ram or burned with matches. The city probably looks something like this. It's elevated. There's people all within these walls. It's fortified for us. Again, this is not necessarily a picture of what it actually was. There was no cameras at that time or people that drew this, but this is the best idea and understanding here what it looked like. Now, the wall itself probably looked something like this. We're not talking about a wooden fence. We're talking about quite a wall here that's built up from the base with strength of these big, large stones and then with a mud brick top. So it's almost impenetrable. Very easy to defend, very difficult to penetrate. The doors are shut, and we've got strong gates barring the way for entry. The point that verse 1 is making to us, as this almost as a side comment of context, it's showing us that there's a big problem in front of Israel. It's almost as though they're saying this is an insurmountable obstacle to anyone else. 
This whole endeavor, though, should not surprise us. We know Yahweh. We know what just happened in chapter 3 and 4. He is the God of insurmountable obstacles. He is the one that stopped the river. He is the one that brought them across. What happens then here is pretty simple. It's something like what's going on is that, that he's trying to show them this is like what happened at the River Jordan. If you look at verse 2, it says something like this, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. It's that God, the God of impossible, or the insurmountable obstacles that now comes to speak to them. And the first thing out of his mouth is say that I have given this to you. Last week we met the commander in 513 through 15, the commander of the Lord's army. And he came to tell Joshua that he was there. Now I have come, he said. And if you remember at the end of the chapter, he didn't leave. And somehow he's actually still there. So it's almost the sense that when the Lord speaks, he is now speaking as the commander of the Lord's army. And so as he does so, Joshua waits the command and the next steps militarily what he ought to do. The word is never left. There's this interesting sense then that the Lord speaks as one who has now come as the warrior with a sword drawn in his hand. The Lord reiterates then here what he had said back in verse 2 of chapter 1. Remember that in the preamble? He, the Lord, is giving this city to his people. See, he says, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. The whole endeavor then is not just a battle, but a gift from Yahweh. This is a given thing to his people, to their covenant, from their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. But God can, this God continues then to give instruction. In verse 3 through 5, he says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And then, sorry, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So here we are, ready for the first commands of this military commander. And the first thing he says, I want you to go on a marching tour. I want you to go and encircle this city. Be quiet, take ram's horns. Take the ark, take priests. I just want you to march, though. Just go around this city. I mean, all this time, Joshua has prepared. He has been painstaking in every detail to follow exactly what God told him. And he already did the first thing, cross over the river. The next thing is to take possession of this land. And we're talking about militarily. And so he hears, and he's ready to hear it. And the first thing he's told to do, go on a march. Not get your people ready, flank them on this side and do this and scale the wall and get your grappling hooks out. No, 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 none of that. It's take your people and go in this way around the city. To us, we look and we're thinking, this plan seems unconventional, maybe, uh, or perhaps weak, or maybe even foolish for some sort of military strategy? Is this really what you want us to do, God? March around a city once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. Is that the battle strategy? I mean, kind of sounds kind of like a, 
a lame version of those rugby players that before the game they do that intimidating dance to everyone. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I think it's called the Hakka dance, and they like scream in this gibberish language, and they like do this kind of stuff, and they slap their arms, and they're trying to intimidate. Israel doesn't even do that. They just walk quietly around the city. And that's the way that they're perceived. And somehow they're looking down and seeing this group go around and around the city. Is, really, is, is, really, really, is Israel really okay with this? Are they going to get behind this military strategy? I mean, they've been waiting a long time. Look at verse 6 and 7. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Yeah, he's going to go with it. He's going to do exactly what God said. Joshua immediately obeys the Lord's word. So far, obedience has worked pretty well for him. Everything that Yahweh has told him to do, he has done completely, and there has been, as he said there would be, prosperity and success in all that he's done because of the presence of the Lord. And so Joshua tells the men to do exactly what Yahweh told them to do. From the beginning, we're seeing that this is Joshua's obedience. And, and take a look in those two verses. What takes center stage? It's mentioned three times already. We saw it in the crossing of the Jordan. The ark. It's right here, center stage. The ark of the covenant is at the center of this solemn moment. God's presence will be their confidence. Also, I, I wish that the translators would have made this a little more clear, but the command that Joshua gives to the people here, go forward in verse 7, is actually quite significant. This is why. It's the exact same verb as pass over the Jordan. Exact same thing that we're talking here. So it's almost as though he is taking these two events and he is saying we're going to have the same thing happen again. What you saw happen Something like it is going to happen again. We're seeing Joshua liken this then to the crossing of the Jordan. In what way? We'll see. They have the ark. They have the priests. They're lining up in procession. And they're moving and going forward or passing forward into this land toward Jericho. The narrator is helping us to see from the very beginning that taking this city will not be by their own strength or strategy or resources. It will be the same way that they were able to cross through or go over the Jordan. It will be by God's mighty hand. Look at verse 8 through 11. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. First day down, complete obedience. And what's happened so far? Nothing. Nothing's happened so far. No crumble, no cracks. Looking for some tremors maybe. Nothing. Maybe some people will give up. No, nothing. All we have is a whole lot of love, uh, nothing. But, but that's not actually true. Now, from the world's perspective, a whole, not a lot, no, whole lot of nothing has happened. They've, they haven't done anything. They just walked around this thing. It seems almost foolish. And this, this horn blowing happened, and they walked, and they were really quiet. But in the eyes of God, something significant did happen. 
again, obedience. The world will think that the way a Christian acts is foolish. It's almost as though it doesn't make any sense or it doesn't matter. However, to God himself, when his people obey, they show their love for him. They show that they understand who he is and their commitment and devotion to him alone. So although the world may think that our actions as Christians are foolish, although the people on top of this wall would say, what a foolish thing to do. God sees obedience. He sees total devotion. And they're willing to obey and trust Yahweh. Did Joshua and his army take the city by military force? No, they obeyed the Lord. And for one day is down. Obedience happened. It's all, I'd also like for you to notice that the ark is showing up repeatedly, even this section right here. Again, we're going to see it over and over again. But there's another thing that's starting to be repeated. The number seven. We're seeing it in all the, how many priests are holding how many horns for how many days. Obviously, this is a number here that is on purpose. It's a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. It signifies and recalls the events of the creation story all the way back that God himself made, that God himself, this number is representing God's work, not man's, but rather the work of God in this scenario. The number points to the actions that this is Yahweh's event, not ours, not Israel's. It's starting to look a lot more like a religious practice or a ceremony than a battle plan. It seems very consistent, very quiet, very prescribed, done over and over and over again. Look at verse 12 through 14. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumps continually. I mean, God's presence is everywhere. This is a different passage. We already read all that. It's continued. More sevens, more understanding of God's presence in the ark. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Obedience again, complete obedience. Ceremony, silence, and it's so laden with religious tones that it's almost starting to sound like some of the reading that you and I do in Leviticus. As though it's like we know this part, and then this happens again, and then this happens again. It's almost like you're reading about a ritual offering or a ceremony. Look at verse 15 through 21. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasure of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep 
and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The seventh day has finally come. It's showtime. They have obeyed completely. They have done everything that Yahweh's asked them to do. And now they obey again, but this time there are visible results. Verse 20 says that the wall fell down flat. If you look at this diagram again, let me show you this again. What's probably happening here in some way is that this brick wall on the top has collapsed. And this is another rendering, else you'll see this. What does it create there? Almost like a siege ramp for people to be able to move into this broken down walled city. Now, I don't know if it's exactly what it looked like. All I know is that it was so broken down that they were able to easily move into this place and do exactly what Yahweh had told them to do. There's no mention of battering rams. There's no mention of exploding things. All we know is that when they obeyed, the walls fell down flat so that they were able to move in. The Lord brought down the wall so that the people could go in and take the city that God had given to them. But notice in the midst of this, Notice Joshua, what he says to the people. It gives us even more reason to question, is this really a battle? Is this really a military endeavor? What's going on here? Joshua tells the people that after all of this this silent walking around seven times with the ark of the Lord at the heart of the ceremonial expression here and the seven priests and the seven ram's horns and all these different things that are complete obedience to every little prescribed detail of the Lord... After all that, listen to these words, they are to devote the city and all that is in it for destruction. Now that is not just a clever way to say total domination. Listen to the words again, devote the city and all that is in it for destruction. This is literal. Instead of clever language, we now have the meaning behind all of this ritual and ceremony, the quietness, the presence of the ark, all these things are showing us that this is not a military strategy. What we are seeing is an offering to the Lord. Jericho itself, and what is happening here, is an offering to the Lord God Yahweh. All these markers point to it, an offering for destruction to the Lord, a devoting of things and people for destruction. Let me tell you where they get this from. Let me read Deuteronomy 13. Moses made these comments when he talked about people that served other gods that were in the land of Canaan, where they were supposed to take this land. This is what he said in verse 15. You shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire. As a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. We are not just seeing Joshua fight one of their, his enemies. He has framed the entire story in devotion to God. We are seeing that the city of Jericho is a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He's doing this on purpose. Every bit of the city is to be destroyed. Every breathing Jericho thing is to be slain. This is a gruesome sight. If you consider this, the soldiers of Israel move over the brick walls that have fallen down, and they go probably house by house to slaughter every inhabitant of Jericho, even the animals. Old men, young men. Old women, young women. Babies, young children. 
all of them are put to the edge of the sword. Let's be serious about what this looks like. There is not one thing that breathes that's left standing. It is all destroyed. Why? Because these are devoted wholly for destruction to God himself. This is an offering to that God. The people are, are not to take a single thing. Only the metals, and they're not to take those. The metals, the gold, silver, bronze, and iron are kept for the Lord, holy to the Lord, put in the treasury. The people are not to take one single thing. Why? Because it's not theirs. It's Yahweh's alone. And I realize this makes us squirm, and it should. It's terrible. Every part of it. I'm not making excuses for it. We have to deal with this, and next week we'll deal with this in length. But do you realize now why next, well also the next chapter in chapter 7 we're going to deal with Achan's sin. But do you realize now why Achan's sin is so heinous? He is literally stealing from the offering plate, taking what is not his but what has been devoted to God wholly. The instructions are very, very clear. Everything must be killed and burned except for the metals. Oh yeah, and Rahab and her family. Wait, uh, isn't she a breathing Jericho thing? Shouldn't she also be put to the edge of the sword? Let's read verses 22 through 26. But, the two men, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab, by her actions, proved not to be a thing of Jericho. Do you realize that it was not her genes, her DNA that made her ready for destruction? By her actions and her faith, she showed herself to be one who belonged to Yahweh as he trusted him and saved the messengers. Her faith, and as James says, her works justified her because she hid the Israelite messengers and pleaded for mercy from the Lord Almighty. This woman and all who were connected to her were saved from certain destruction. Every other breathing thing, taken, slain. More time is given to the salvation of Rahab explaining it than is to the falling of the wall of Jericho. What's the greater miracle, guys? we would normally probably say the wall. But what's far more important to him here? Seeing that a Gentile prostitute could be rescued from the midst of absolute destruction and judgment. What do we see coming out of the middle of judgment and destruction? Salvation. We can't miss this. Right in the middle of us, we see the promises of God come true for Rahab. Didn't we see the same thing happen in Egypt? Do you remember this? The people's salvation as they obeyed God's command to place the blood on the doors. Remember that? He said, put the blood on the doors so I'll pass over and not slay your firstborn. And what happens? In the midst of all of Egypt losing the firstborn, there's salvation. In the midst of judgment. Let's go back a little further. How about Noah? 
in the midst of what ought to be a worldwide flood to crush and kill all things living, here we have God telling Noah to obey, to build an ark and to get inside of it because I'm going to destroy everything. We have judgment, and in the midst of judgment comes salvation. Why? Why do we see this as a theme coming up? Because that's what we're seeing here in Rahab. It all goes back to actually to Genesis 3. And what we're seeing here is that God had to be true to himself. He had promised that eventually he would produce offspring from Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. We know him as Jesus Christ. But over and over and over again, people pushing to the edge of judgment and destruction and deserving every bit of it. And yet, we saw this back in chapter 5, we saw that he raises up a people for himself. He will not be overcome by our disobedience. He will overcome. Over and over again, we see that he is, as he describes himself in Exodus 34, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Yahweh is not clearing the guilty. He's destroying them here in Jericho. Yahweh is not quick to anger. He has waited and patiently waited until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. I'm talking all the way back from Genesis 15. We're waiting until this time now that that is complete. Yahweh is gracious and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He has rescued the Gentile prostitute Rahab, who has believed and acted as a true Israelite. Rahab's salvation proclaims the glorious character of Yahweh and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand that Rahab's sin doesn't just go away magically. It has to be paid for. It has to be taken care of. We understand that only one could do that, one who was perfect. We know that it was actually the laying of her iniquity on Jesus, the Messiah. What good news it is then that he forgives us disgusting sinners because of the love of Jesus Christ in giving us life. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for Rahab's iniquities. You can imagine what they were. All of that stuff Jesus took upon himself. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus did that. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friend, if you don't know him, you need to know him. You must have this God. There is no one like him. Rahab has taught us that the glories of God were the ones that invented Calvary. The one who loves his people so much was the one that sent his son to die so that you and I could know reconciliation with the Father. Don't turn your nose up at that. You will either pay with your own life or you will trust Jesus who has given his life for yours. Before the foundation of the earth, he chose to send his son to the cross to take the hit for Rahab. Let's take her name out for a minute, though. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose to send his son to the cross to take the hit for you. Make it personal. Do you understand that this is for you and for me? For his blood-bought church that he gave himself? The call is legitimate today. Friend, Repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ alone and obey him in joy as the true Lord. 
Let us continue. Look at verse uh, 26 here together. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Does this strike anyone a little bit strangely here? Like, sheesh, man, you just destroyed every living thing, and now you're going to put, like, another curse on top of it? Like, it seems awfully severe. It's, it's almost like over the top, like, almost ceremonial. It's totally ceremonial. It's helping us understand that this is how Joshua is seeing this whole event. This is not just a battle. Joshua is showing us that the fall of Jericho is something that is devoted to the Lord for destruction. And by that we mean an offering to the Lord. Let me read Leviticus 27, and I think it's going to make a little more sense why this curse is here. There's two verses. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction for mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. This is where Joshua is coming from. He knows that this is true. In other words, if anyone tries to take back that which has been devoted to the Lord, Jericho, the punishment is to be death. And what does Joshua say? At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations. Death. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up his gates. Death. He realizes that what's going on here is an offering of destruction to the Lord. He has shown us then that the most important thing in this conquest is not strategy, is not resources, but rather the presence of God himself. Joshua is showing this whole thing has been an act of obedience and devotion to Yahweh. The giving of Jericho is a picture of the Lord's great power and demand for the covenant-keeping faithfulness of his people, that they would obey him. Look at the last verse. The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, it seems like a throwaway verse. What's this all about? He already told Joshua that he would exalt him in front of all the people of Israel in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, he was exalted to all the people in Israel. The Lord has told him this, but now we're going in a different direction. His fame is not only through Israel. Look what it says here. His fame was in all the land. How? Why? It was all from one thing. It all comes back to the preamble, all back from chapter 1, where God said that I will never leave you, never forsake you. My presence will be your confidence and your strength. Without my presence, you have nothing. But with me, you have prosperity and you will have success. It's all coming back to that, that it is done in the Lord. Now, we've come to the end of this story. What are we to do then with this passage? What are we to take away from the offering and the, and the gifting of Jericho? We talked about the fact that this is an act of obedience and devotion to Yahweh. We talked about the faith of Rahab. And we even started to hit on this idea of true judgment of those that rebel against Yahweh. But I'd like for us to consider one final thing as we look at this episode. Who won this battle? At the beginning of our story, we met the divine warrior back in 5, 13 through 15. We met him and he never went away. He stayed there. It is not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho and won. It is not to his credit. 
It is he who accomplished this great victory, Yahweh, the commander of the Lord's army. No question. All glory is to God alone. But this whole thing has shown us that he demanded the people's hearts and their hands. He demanded love and obedience. They had to obey. Was it God's victory and working to bring down the walls of Jericho? Or was it the people's doing and their marching and their shouting that brought down the walls? Listen, God can do all the work and still demand your obedience. And he gets all glory. Don't think for a moment that God needed anyone to do his work. And don't miss the fact that if Israel had not obeyed here, do you realize what would have happened? They would have been just like their unfaithful, wicked, disobedient parents. They would have been known as a generation that disobeyed God. God's sovereignty sovereignty and our love and obedience to him are far from contradictory. We always are like, ah, did God do this or did I do this? I'm not really sure. It's who's in control? I know God did it, so it doesn't really matter about my obedience. No, they're far from contradictory. We're seeing this come together right here in the story. He leads his people into obedience and total dependence on him. This gets to us. So what's this all about? Why is this important? I'll ask you this. What things have you neglected or disobeyed in your own life simply because you believe that God is sovereign and you've given the excuse that it's okay because God will take care of it? He doesn't need me. He's great. He's good. I can sing his praises and leave it all in his hands. I don't have to obey. How about prayer? Let's just go basic, real simple. How many of us don't pray because we, we just know that God will do whatever he does? Why do I need to pray? He's in control. He can change people's hearts. He doesn't need me to do any of that kind of stuff. How many times have we done this where we have said and made an excuse not to obey because we've pinned it on God's sovereignty? We've allowed our sin to abound because we're blaming on his grace. If you've given yourself that excuse before, which I have, that God is sovereign and strong and my prayers don't matter, you've proven yourself to be a people of disobedience and unbelief. As he calls us to pray, and desire that love relationship between us and him, the covenant-keeping God, then we should obey and pray like the scriptures tell us to, interceding for one another, interceding for the life of the world, the unbelievers around us, that they would know Christ. One more thought. When was the last time that you spoke the truth and love to those around you? I'm talking about your verbal Christian witness. I'm talking about speaking Jesus Christ or proclaiming him to your neighbors, to your friends, to those that you work out at the gym with, to the people that are in your family that are unbelieving. When was the last time that you had a conversation that said, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is everything, and he is actually what you need more than anything else? When was the last time that you actually did that? When was the last time that you opened your feeble mouth to tell someone about Jesus and why they needed him? Is your excuse then that God doesn't need you? Friends, brothers and sisters, the reason I bring these two things up is because of the things that I struggle with. I am no better than you. I'm trying to help us understand and be realistic about the reasons we give for our disobedience. And in this passage alone, we see God's sovereign control and action and him calling to people, calling to his people to be obedient and follow him. It is all glory to him, but he calls us to be obedient and to love and follow him.
Again, I said this is things that I struggle with as well. There are many other things that God has called us to. In love, he has called us to live as kingdom citizens, to obey and to find joy in knowing him and his ways. Brothers and sisters, I'll finish here. Let us then follow the example of Joshua, our forefathers who rightly obeyed and not be like those in the wicked generation who did not obey, who did not believe, but rather follow in these footsteps and love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind so that we might have prosperity and success in knowing him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time together. We leave it in your hands. We rest in the fact that we are on your side, not that we are pleading with you to come be on our side and bless our plans. God, would you teach us to know you and to love you, that our whole hearts would be given over to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.